Reverend. You can have any truth you want. Walk, talk, address a duke, a lord, a bishop, an ambassador. It's absolutely impossible. Projections podcast. We are Sarah, Catherine Cleaver, and Mary Wilde, and we like to use psychoanalysis to talk about film and film to talk about life. We're back with a series of episodes exploring fashion films. We'll be running through themes including controlling creation, desiring desire, violence and bodies, consuming and corruption, fetish, reading clothes, and disguise and secrets, as well as anything else that happens to come up during our sessions. We're especially fascinated by the relationship between fashion and death, and we've chosen films that represent this intriguing dynamic. Join us for an in-depth investigation of fashion films. Bye! Hi Mary. Hi Sarah. Welcome to episode four of series two, Fashion Films. We have Projections Podcast. Yeah. I said everything. (laughs) This is uh, consuming and corruption. It is. This the loose uh, kind of theories that we're going to discuss, and we're going to be talking about the devil. No, we're not going to be talking about the devil is Prada. We're going to be talking about the September issue. Yeah. Um, uh, Two thousand and nine. Yeah. And the Neon Demon, which I'm so looking forward to talking about yeah. from two thousand and sixteen. Yeah, and I mean, when I set up our Twitter account, I borrowed an image from that. You did, actually. Because I was anticipating, I was already anticipating our series on fashion films, so yeah, it's just such a great film. It is amazing, and it's one of those films that most people I know hate. Yeah. Um, So it's really, so I'm very happy to have found you in life, obviously, for other (laughs) reasons, but because you're one of the only people I know that likes The Neon Demon, (laughs) and I like it so much, I think it's a perfect film. Yeah. I am. I'm. I'm always going to be a fan of this film. Nothing can convince me otherwise. So it's me nice too. to be able to get a little bit in depth as yeah, to why. Yeah, it has a lot to offer. Theoretically, it's go- it's a gorgeous looking film. It's gorgeous. Um, and yeah, I'm glad we're talking about these two films side by side because we put them together as you know, um, in the subcategory of fashion and death. Yeah. Which is definitely, I think it is a continuation of last week's episode. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, because we could have talked about this, we could have easily talked about The Neon Demon last week. Yeah. It goes so well with Blood and Black Lace. Violence and Bodies, yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Blood and Black Lace, absolutely. Um, But I think that actually is pinned, you know, pitted against, um, sorry, pitted against uh, the September issue. I think it's interesting when we're talking about uh, corrupt, you know, corrupt influences um, and corrupting influences, as well as just a, you know consumption, mm. uh, theoretically, but and also literally. literally. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's a really good film in that regard. Um, so actually, let's start off with the September issue. Yes, because I think it's a good place to start in this uh, in this topic. Uh, this is a two thousand and nine documentary. It's an American documentary film. Uh, by R.J. Cudler. It's about the making of the September 2007 issue of American Vogue, the magazine. 
Um, and the September issue of Vogue has been historically thought of as the biggest, most important issue of the year, mm -hmm. um, with the highest number of advertising pages. Um, and you can see in the film the kind of the, the different dynamics between the editor of Vogue, Anna Winter, which the film is mainly about, centering really around her and her relationships professionally and personally. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's also this kind of tension and contrast between Anna and uh, Grace Coddington. Yeah, who's the art, is art director? Creative director. Creative director. Yeah. Um, and actually, I read an article about the making of the film. Yeah. Um, and the, in, initially, uh, Grace refused to be involved. Oh, really? Yeah. She uh, she didn't want to be she didn't want to be on camera. She didn't want to sort of you know have her. So it doesn't surprise her opinions me. in it. Yeah. And um, they, they gradually, I think they just gradually made friends with her really? until she was, and she, they, it's interesting because you can really tell the closeness between the filmmakers and Grace because they kind of become her allies at some they point. They do. Um, but yeah, that is what the film eventually is. It's supposed to be a film about Anna Winter, but it becomes a film about this relationship and these two different approaches yeah. to, to creativity and to fashion and to, to making this magazine. Yeah, absolutely. And you can also think of the film in a way, as such a kind of historically interesting story, uh, particularly because it was released in 2009. This mm -hmm. is pre-Instagram. And at that time, of course, it was a very different world. Yeah. And, and, you know, the world of beauty and fashion uh, was very much dominated by these kinds of publications, you know, Vogue magazine and people like Anna Winter, who really kind of had a lot of dominion mm -hmm. over... Um, the place of designers, the relationships with you know corporate figures in the fashion industry, uh, setting trends, uh, meeting with you know celebrity ambassadors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, now this is a very different story um, with Instagram because I think that in a way the influence has been really democratized. Yeah, hugely. I can't imagine that that print magazines sell very well no. these days, and if they do, they're they're they're, they have a completely different offering to what the offering of Vogue was. You know, they're special artifacts yeah. with with beautiful content. You'll never have another print magazine, print publication that's telling you trends yeah. or how to dress or you know yeah. what's new and hot right now because it takes so long. They take so long to make when someone can just tweet it. Is really the last. We're kind of witnessing the death of that fashion world in this so. documentary. So it does completely fit in with our fashion and death thing. Absolutely. It is. And they <laughs> and they do keep saying, um, they do keep saying killed, don't they? Yeah. Grace keeps saying, Anna's killed my story, Anna's killed this killed this this spread, Anna's killed these pages. There's a lot There's of references lot of, to death. Really a lot. Um yeah, and in a way the the kind of the theoretical um, construct that I wanted to, well, that I found useful in my reading of this film, mm -hmm. uh, if we're speaking purely from a psychoanalytic perspective, was actually the mirror stage, unsurprisingly, okay. yeah. maybe, because in a sense, up to that point, and those really were the final days of, you know, Vogue magazine's influence and reach mm -hmm. in terms of really kind of <laughs> defining the parameters of fashion stories and you know, maintaining a great, a very high degree of influence in, in terms of shaping desire for consumers. Mm. Um, 
this really was still very much in a time when, I mean, I remember growing up, you know, and I used to uh, collect fashion magazines. I was a big reader of them. I loved Vogue. I loved Harper's Bazaar. Um, I think those were the two main ones I, I sought out. I never really got into things like uh, Cosmopolitan. Mm -hmm. um, Not even to... So right about, about sex. sex, yeah. No, I watch. <laughs> I watched softcore porn. Ah, oh, okay. We were different. Sorry, we would, if you're we, listening. <laughs> we were different kinds of teenage girls. <laughs> I would have watched hardcore porn. It just wasn't available yeah, at the time because there was no internet. <laughs> no, I was. I was. Uh, I was far too scared to to look for any kind of porn. I was. I was reading like Ms. Magazine and then Cosmo. Yeah. Um, and then I also once had a terrible experience uh, borrowing my mum's copy of Nancy Friday Women on Top. Oh my god. Um, which is such a terrible experience that I can't tell on this <laughs> podcast and I'll tell you privately. <laughs> my sexual education did not run smoothly. <laughs> you want to know what else? Before I actually started watching um, the softcore soft films, let's say, um, when I was in sixth grade, mm -hmm. so I must have been, what, around 12 or yeah, something? Yeah, 11 or 12. Yeah, 11 or 12. Uh, I would go and borrow Daniel Steele and Jackie Collins' books from the library, yeah. which had That's so cool. many sex stuff in them. And I would just change the cover and, and put it to some so kind of... So sneaky. So sneaky. To some kind That's of, like, work. safe... Yeah, I well, know. actually, but then what else did we do? Like, when yeah. we were 11 or 12, we put we could put huge amounts of work into elaborate schemes. Oh, yeah. And the other thing I really liked was um, Channel 4 used to do this thing where they did, like, 100 greatest... Like, it was all film stuff, actually, that yeah. I, I used to like. Like, I like the scene in The English Patient where... Uh, Ray Fiennes puts like his whole thumb into Kristen Scott Thomas's mouth. Oh, like, yeah. what's, like, why? Why? What's going on? I like it. And then, um, but that's probably that. But so I think that might just be why I love film so much because yeah. all of my clues about sexual desire came from film and TV. I hope it doesn't mean that with kids growing up now and everything being so readily available, mm. and the fact that they no longer need to kind of root out, you know, root through things and. And, and sit through all kinds of content and material and be imaginative and, and use their research skills to find things out. I hope the fact that everything is just so easily, readily available will not mean that the next generation are just going to be really bad in bed. Because, yeah, I mean, it might, it might be, because it's like everything is right there, you That's know? That's true. They never have to, like, they, they never, never have, have to, to use their imaginations. No. There's no, there's no kind of investigation. Which no. I think is reflected in um, the way that they date, which is like through dating apps. Yeah. You know, you just you're you're just picking someone because of their sort of surface qualities, and yeah. there isn't any investigation. No. And 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 that does that you know that does strike me as like this profound lack of romance and this profound lack I of know. imagination. And I wonder if the way that they the way that they consume sex is mirrored in the way that they date. And are they, oh. There's no searching. There's no searching. And searching is the whole point. Searching Thanks. and then finding something and then having, and then having it have such, such an important, profound influence on you that it comes back to you years later as something yeah. you really like. Yeah. Something that you, something you really cannot do without, something that you, all your, your entire sexuality is like. Really impacted you. Yeah. I know. Oh. That would be a whole great new series. It would be a good, we should definitely do in like, yeah. Uh, and, like an er erotic, erotic cinema, yeah, erotic cinema, not <laughs> pornography, but like yeah. everything, everything that kind of comes close to it that you can, mm. everything that you can turn into pornography with just some imagination. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
But in a way, but in a way, you know, in a way, our discussion on fashion is not a million miles away from that. No, no, because it's a discussion on desire. It's exactly, and it's how people build their identities through this kind of interaction with their own desire, Mm -hmm. Um, and particularly in fashion. So if we're if we're thinking about the theoretical idea of the mirror stage, just to kind of run through what that means. So this is something that Jacques Lacan developed. Um, He, of course, was a Freudian. He also was at bringing in dimensions of linguistics and post-structuralism uh, into his reading of Freud. Mm-hmm. Um, so for him, he was really interested in uh, the for- formation of identity, how people construct the perception of who they are and their conscious personality, the ego. So he said that um, initially, um, the child, prior to the ability of recognizing themselves in a reflective device that can be a mirror. Prior to that, they're just kind of this mass of uh, undefined uh, instincts. Mm-hmm. And he theorized that children are pretty much just, in a sense, their identity is fused with that, that of their caregiver. Usually the mother if there's breastfeeding involved. So there's a lot of like close uh, bodily contact. Uh, they rely on the parent for being fed, being clothed, you know, nappies, everything. And so in a sense, they probably think they're just an extension of that parent. There's no separation, really. There's just a fusion of those identities. It's only when they begin to realize that they really are um, a separate being. Um, he, he said this happens when they start to identify, when they, uh, they see this reflected image of themselves and identifying with this external image as being themselves. Um, but up until that point, they lack bodily coordination. Um, and he said that this actually can be very frustrating. The fact that they cannot speak, they can't walk. They're completely dependent on their primary caregiver. And he theorized that internally, their world is pure chaos. They, ha- they just, they can't communicate. They, they, there's, there's all kinds of wishes and wants that they can't express. Mm. And it leaves them feeling really helpless. But when they start, when they start to make the link between what they look like, their appearance, with an image and, an, and a reflective device, he said that actually, suddenly, that feeling of chaos is temporarily uh, reassured, because he said the child starts to make the link that the whole world is not privy to their internal chaos. Mm -hmm. Like they feel like a hot mess, but they're being told that this perfectly contoured image in the mirror, this baby is actually them. And the baby looks okay. Doesn't doesn't have lesions and like looks scary. It's like a decent looking shape. And that's reassuring. The baby starts to feel like this sense of jubilation. Oh my God, look, I'm, I'm actually, a sort of coherent shape and not this undefined frustration and anxiety. So then that becomes very soothing and becomes very reassuring to find out that, oh my God, the whole world is seeing actually this lovely image, not the, the, all the, the, the crazy mess I feel inside. So they start to get this strong sense of wanting to continually identify with the external image. To, f- to keep seeking out that sense of reassurance that they're actually okay. The world is seeing a- a- an image that's decent, and that becomes reassuring. 
And so he said that um, this kind of complete, unified, perfectly contoured, reassuring image becomes um, something that really structures the psyche uh, in, ter in terms of something identifying with, the, with this external image. That itself then later can become alienating because we're, we're seeking reassurance in something that's outside of ourselves, mm. this image outside. So it's, temporarily, it's quite soothing. Ultimately, it can come with its own set of problems. Um, but the psyche locates in the mirror this comforting ideal image. Um, and I think that's what Vogue is. Vogue is just this fancy mirror mm. that's reflecting back to you this ideal that you can identify with and it's promising you a better life, uh, a kind of like, yeah, I suppose a kind of antidote to your problems. If you get this handbag, if you get this outfit, uh, if you style it in this way, if you do your hair like this, if you buy these makeup products, you can change your image and then you can be the reflected image that we're selling to you. Mm. You can consume it for a price and you won't, you'll trick the world into not seeing the hot mess you really are. You're just giving them a nice mask, a nice image to present to the world. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I'm convinced that that's what Instagram is as well. Instagram and selfies. Oh, We've had this conversation before. Like, yeah. for me, the selfie, I have nothing against selfies, by the way. I'm not saying this. I know, I've seen way. your selfies. Yeah. Great. Same. I, yeah. I, have to, I have to pair them with a self deprecating <laughs> caption. But luckily, I've been deprecating myself since I could speak, so it's not difficult. It's very charming when Brits do it. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's what, that's what Instagram selfies are. They're just moments in the mirror. We've seen ourselves looking good, you know, um, with our, with the camera and our phone. We can make, we may even use filters, whatever. And we, we capture that moment in time, that interaction with our own reflection. And we post it on Instagram. It's just a collection of moments we've seen ourselves in the mirror mm. and they're reassuring because, and that's why we keep, we, conti we continue to take them. It's not enough just to, to look once. What, that sense of reassurance is not satisfying for just that one time. We but then eventually it's not satisfying at all. No. Which is how, I mean, I know that I, I find, I used to find uh, discussions of smartphone addiction annoying and overly moralistic until I realized that I had one. <laughs> And I'm at the stage where Instagram yeah. is starting to give me profound, like profound anxiety. Mm. Just I feel trapped scrolling, and I think that is, uh, I think that's that happens to a lot of people. Oh, yeah. So it's that same, it's that same mirror stage, it's that same uh, journey of the mirror stage. What, what at first is soothing <laughs> becomes very anxiety provoking and impossible to maintain. It's a really good point because mm. it is a journey. Yeah. Initially, it's a feeling of jubilation of reassurance, yeah. but then. Because we're identifying with that exteriority, that something outside of ourselves, we're, alien we're actually alienating ourselves mm -hmm. from ourselves. So, you're, yeah, I agree. Like, sometimes, when I first really discovered Instagram, it was a lot of fun. But then I found myself following makeup artists I really like, and they have to present their Insta in such a way that it's always fabulous, mm -hmm. you know, as part of their, I don't know, it's just how they choose to document 
um, themselves on Instagram. And it, get, it, it does start to feel very, uh, I don't know, it's not even FOMO, it's like, it's kind of worse than that. It's a little bit more sinister. Mm. It's kind of like, because we because I identify with them, I identify with the products they use, I consume a lot of the same products, I'm a makeup junkie, but then if I, if I haven't got the latest palette or if I haven't perfected my look as much as they have or whatever it is, it's kind of haunts me. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah? Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> I don't know why. It's kind of irrational, really. Um, so, pre-Instagram, um, I find that interesting because uh, he does, they have that um, press conference and they say that every year the September issue gets larger and larger and heavier and heavier. And that's sort yeah. of, that is kind of the same thing, isn't it? That you know that what has become what started out as as a a dream has become a burden, yeah. you know. And it's it's a literal burden, like it's too it's too heavy to carry, and it's too yeah. heavy to like comfortably read. And, yeah. and but it's a nuisance. It's almost. a nuisance. It's complete. Like, why would you want to buy a really heavy magazine? You can't carry it around. No, it doesn't fit in your bag. Yeah, it's stupid. Like that's not what that's not what the future is supposed to be like but that's the only future they can have because yeah. getting bigger and bigger and spending more money is the only I mean it's yeah. like it's like um it's, it, again I've, I've said this every single podcast it's like capitalism yeah. like the only business model is to make more money every year which actually when you think about it is that's stupid like yeah. why shouldn't why I've never understood that like why no. shouldn't it be okay to just make the same amount yeah. of money every year yeah. but it's not it has to be more otherwise you're not successful yeah so yeah, they're, 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 like it's growing fatter and fatter and bigger and bigger, but no one in the magazine is actually eating. Yeah. So like all of this, like the only person that's gaining, the only thing that's gaining weight is the magazine. Yeah, and that's like, and everyone else is starving. Yeah, yeah, because we see like Grace Cunnington, we who is the only person who eats on camera in, yeah, in the entire so true. documentary. And she like angrily, I remember I really liked that scene, I watched it a few times, but she's like really angrily eating salad. It's when she's like really had it with Anna. Yeah. And she's like stabbing this. And, and I and I just, every time I watch that scene, I think you wouldn't be so angry if you didn't have a salad. Like if you just had something a little bit like. You need a you sandwich were, as Yeah, well. if you had a sandwich, like or some like cheese on toast, you'd be a lot happier. But yeah, like this idea that, um, because in a way, the, all of Vogue is, it's kind of like, you know, we've talked about this before, what Slavoj Zizek says about cinema, it's the perfect pervert art because it t tells us how to desire. Mm -hmm. But in a way, this, you know, a magazine like this, um, particularly, you know, maybe not so much today, post Instagram, but at the time of this, the release of this film, it is also serving that same pervert function, mm. you know, telling people what, how to consume and what to consume, um, setting out these ideals uh, in a very specifically, you know, sort of curated way, um, in a desirable way, mm -hmm. for people to then feel compelled to follow the trends and uh, rally around the same kind of designers that they've been instructed to, mm. to, to like. Um, and I guess the, the mirror stage theory intrigues me, not just because it's a valuable way to look at the function of a magazine like Vogue, which is a mirror, in which we take 
some degree of at least maybe fleeting comfort when we feel some level of identification with the stories presented to us, where we actually might see, even though we may have nothing in common with the people depicted in the pages, we, it's, I think the secret is in the fact that we may see ourselves, like we may feel there's a possibility of mm -hmm. entering that world if we abide by those rules, if we buy the things that are being featured there. So while it's, it's a good, um, it's a useful theory for studying the magazine itself. What really intrigued me is the fact that actually what kind of person Anna is and how she was brought up. Yeah, she's... And she's, her style, you know? Yeah, she is very interesting. Um, the first thing... I'm trying to remember. The first, the first scene is yeah. Anna explaining why people are frightened of the fashion industry. Yeah. Which I found very like a very revealing thing. Yeah. Which is is just great because it's what we're attempting to do in this podcast. Yeah. Um, but she uh, she misidentifies I think by yeah. people. She says that people feel excluded and so they make fun. It's not quite that. No. She's not quite. And it's interesting because all through for hundreds of years people have tried to explain the terror of fashion. Yeah. There's a really there's an interesting little um, piece of writing. It's by an Italian. It's called. Uh, conversation between fashion and death um but the the point in the in the conversation is is that um fashion is superficial okay and again it's it's a misidentification of what's yeah. of why he's got he's got it right that they are that they're related but he doesn't he's wrong about mm -hmm. why and so is anna yeah she's got she's she's correctly identified that people are scared of fashion and fashion is scary fashion is innately scary and she's quite scared of fashion yeah, I think she's constantly trying to get she's tr constantly trying to get rid of fashion the, yeah. all the way through the documentary. She's rejecting clothes. She's rejecting pages. She's replacing them with uh, with advertising. Yeah, she's you know she's doing this having business meetings instead of instead of creating fashion. Exactly. So she's you know she's she's just, resisting fashion. She's incredibly resistant to it, yeah. and there's and there's something inside her and from her upbringing that tells that she should be resistant to fashion. She says that my siblings think I'm think what I do is very funny. Like they yeah, think I'm, they're amused. They're very amused yeah. by what I do. You know, she never talks about her mother, not no. once, but her father. Yeah. So he was an uh, he was the editor of the Evening Standard, mm -hmm. um, Charles Winter, and he had a very Victorian upbringing. And she at one point she says that he never saw his mother or something like that. Yeah. Or she never spoke to him. And she never speaks of her mother. So, That's right. Yeah. yeah. So she's repeating that pattern. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a bit where she says that she filled out an admissions form when she was a teenager and she was instructed by her father to write editor of Vogue uh, under career uh, objective. And she said that was it. It was decided because he was a newspaper editor. Mm. And to me, this is really interesting because, um, I think you're absolutely right. She, she, cause she, she goes through, she actually takes quite a long time to go through all of what her siblings do for a living, like their professional stat status. And one is like, I think her brother is a political editor of The Guardian. Mm -hmm. uh, she's got another sibling who is working in housing in the UK. Um, they're all like, they're, they're a very highly achieving family, but she makes the point that their jobs are a lot more like valuable in terms of contributions to society. Mm -hmm. And she, and she then makes the point that they all look kind of look down 
at Anna's career in a, in a way, even though she's, she's at the very top of her industry, she makes the point that they view the fashion world as a bit silly, a bit frivolous, mm. and that they're amused by what she does. And she kind of positions it almost as if we're kind of led to believe that she's going to prove them wrong, she's going to prove us wrong. But then all of her behavior, as you rightly say, ultimately just fulfills their attitude. It like really she, does. She's, yeah. she's, absolutely, she's absolutely terrified of fashion. She's absolutely... <laughs> She's kind of repelled by it, I think. I think so too. Um, and I like, you know, I really like. I like her. She's got. I love how icy she is, yeah. and how um, she doesn't really want anyone to touch her. And yeah. I think she's a really. I mean, I know she's not a character, but I think she's a really interesting character. Yeah, she's very formidable. She's very formidable, and I find a woman yeah. like that really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. But she is, um, and I found it really interesting that her birth into fashion is. She sort of talks about the sixties and what an important time that was and how she could see that was such an important time and all I could think was that's not that's not what it's like anymore no. that's not this time and 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 you and your magazine have had a huge um sort of part in making that not the time exactly anymore. she's you know she's killing fashion in in all these huge ways but as you know behind that desk as as, as that editor Oh yeah, and and that's and she's and she has no uh, she has like really no love for creatives. No, she we see her in a in a very uncomfortable scene where she meets Stefano Pilati. Yeah, who's very YSL. very uncomfortable, very very like he's and he says to her he says to her I'm anxious and she immediately like she actually like turns her body away yeah. from him like she's like uh, like as if she's gonna catch it. Or yeah, something. exactly. It's like she's already got enough anxiety, so she doesn't need yours, Stefano's. But it's it. But it, it's it's so harsh. You know, she has she's not there to reassure creativity. No. She's there to assure uh, to she's there to ensure that creativity meets its deadline. Exactly. Yeah, and we can we can see how he's very much competing for her attention, mm. and as all designers do, and of course he's aware of her influence and he wants to be in her good graces, but she just makes these very abrupt comments about his collection, yeah. about the lack of color, uh, and we, there's a very pathetic moment where he grabs like a, a kind of forest green or emerald green. Yeah, it's not emerald green, it's like no. very dark green. <laughs> it's very dark green. I think it's got an emerald green lining, and that's the oh, joke. Yeah. Um, and he says, I don't feel, so that's like, I don't, I just don't feel color, color in, in winter, like, yeah. I don't, I don't feel like it, you know. Yeah. She doesn't care how he feels. No. She has no time for him. No. And she wants to get the meeting started right away. She, she, she just, you can see that she doesn't want to be there. Mm. She, she really, I, I feel like you're right. She has a strong resistance and disdain almost for these creative types. But she's so different in all those scenes where she's having the corporate meetings, like the corporate breakfast mm. with Neiman Marcus. Oh my God. I mean, what a different, completely different demeanor. She's so, um, you know, she laughs at the guy's jokes. Uh, she wants to, she, she's very sort of like charming with him. She, she, she really wants to appease him. And he makes comments about, you know, what needs to be done for things to be delivered more on time. And she's willing to take on his, you know, feedback. It's a very, she, you can see she's a real corporate woman. She is, she is really corporate. And yeah. she's, 
I mean, she does shut him down a little bit by the end of it. She does. Yeah. She does. And she still maintains, yeah, very much her power status in the meeting. Yeah. But she's just, she seems to be a lot more amenable. Yeah, she is. And she's just more, more pleasant. There, yeah. There is something about, there is something about the creator. She's the same with, she's quite rude to, um... Maria Testino yeah. as well, um, but she, there's something about the creatives that she just she finds them she finds it almost unbearable to be in a room with them, yeah. and it, the same applies to Grace Coddington, who is oh, yeah. like her complete opposite. Where Anna is like where Anna represents like the perfect mirror stage, like she's like she there's no there's barely any orifices on her, like she's all like one glued together <laughs> shape. Um, Grace is is like her hair is like yeah. <laughs> all over the place and like you know you can see like where her like her eye was like ripped off yeah. in that car accident and it was like kind of like you know um sort of what's the, what how do you how do you do it reconstructed, um, reconstructed yeah uh, what is the word grafted grafted, grafted back yeah in. and uh, she doesn't wear any makeup no uh, she wears flat shoes yeah she has this completely different just like her appearance must be so like terrifying for someone, and they're both British. Yeah. But Anna's like Anna's got this American horror about death. Yeah. Because and that's the thing when I was looking at her covers as she's showing her daughter all of her September yeah. issue covers, and I was like, what bland and awful covers, and yeah. what a strange paradox that someone I know. who someone who is so who works in fashion doesn't want to and doesn't I don't know someone that doesn't want to acknowledge death but is but it's in her yeah (laughs) it's contained in her but it's like but she's yeah you're completely right the mirror stage is exactly what she's doing like all of those girls on those covers they're all blonde and like uh, or, and they're like they're like just very all American. They're really healthy. She like, criticizes when she's just death warmed up cover yeah. because they've got pale skin. Yeah. And and she wants them all. And that's not fashion. There's nothing. No. There's nothing. Fa- I mean, to British sensibilities at least, there's nothing fashionable about that. No. Like fashion is all about that flirtation with with death and the you know we've danger. Had, yeah. With danger. With heroin chic. Yeah. With the, you know the, with the glamour of hedonism with all of the things that we're really scared of. <laughs> Is that's what fashion is about? That's what the designers in Paris are celebrating. You yeah. know, uh, Jean Paul Gaultier is making a collection based on like, print, like long dead princes from history, and yeah. um, and Grace Coddington wants to look at the twenties and thirties yeah. and wants that all of those Brassai photographs where the women have big thick ankles. Yeah. And Anna, who is so full of mortality, like is is just terrified of death. She wants everyone to be glowy, and she wants to. She can't bear Sienna Miller's hair because oh, it's yeah. growing out and it's sort of in between two states, and so she she has to cut. They have to cover it with a wig, like all of these things. She's just absolutely terrified of death. Yeah, she goes out of her way uh, to regulate mm. the magazine and try as much as possible to uh, just maintain certain boundaries. So that it doesn't spill over into what it really should be about, mm. which is fashion. It's really fascinating. And it's not surprising to see what happens to I the know. industry in general. It is much more democratized. I think it's it's human nature to um, mm. to pick a person and to hold them to hold them up as a, as uh, you know an icon or an idol yeah. or the ideal of, of something. I mean, yeah. we'll always do it. You can't stop people doing it. It's idiotic, but you can't stop people. You can't yeah. stop yourself doing it. No. Um, so there will always be stars, but I think the distribution of power is so different. Oh, yeah. And maybe she could feel that. 
that. I think so. Um, that oncoming. Yeah, because I mean, I heard a story that uh, so the CEO of Glossier, who, you know, the, the beauty brand, mm. the American beauty brand, which is based in New York. So she used to work at Vogue. She had a very kind of low job there. Some she wasn't very high ranking. She was just kind of starting out. Mm. But then she started blogging, yeah, into the glass. That oh, was the name of the... I didn't know that Glossier and Into the Glass were connected. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. So Glossier was the, is, the, is, the, is the beauty brand that emerged from the blog originally. And I think there's a... Isn't, isn't it the case that in the um, documentary, the September issue, Anna makes a point about blog. She said she hates the, the word. Or maybe maybe I'm remembering... No, I know someone does say that, that in... In the, Someone the brings up the word blog, and she says she just hates the word that she just hates the way that word sounds. Yeah, it, it disgusts her or something. It it is, but I mean, it is a it is a strange word because it's it's never really been able to encapsulate what blogging is, which is yeah. so much more than than updating your WordPress. Yeah, you know, because it's everything now. It's all there is. Yeah, like all publications are just are blogs. Yeah, it's just like up to the minute. It's up to the re- minute. Like reporting. Yeah. Basically, and also there's um, it is interesting that that uh, Glossier founder was uh, decided to go and blog about makeup because that's probably the most democratic entry into fashion, yeah. isn't it? It's the like the most low cost. Yeah, you can all like does most people. Yeah, um, you know you can't afford a Chanel. You'll never afford a Chanel dress, but you could buy a Chanel lipstick. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just more accessible, mm-hmm. um, and it's probably. The people that you're speaking to are probably a lot more diverse mm-hmm. as well. Um, but yeah, so it's just interesting to me that there's already this disdain and this uh, suspicion, you know, around what people are doing in blogs. This whole realm, this up and coming um, trend that she can't control. Mm. It's not under her dominion. You know, she controls everything at, in her pages. She makes decisions about that. But what people are doing on their computers, in their own homes, uh, connecting with each other on social media and spreading the word about their blogs, she cannot access that. You know, it's, she, she can't do anything about that. She said something like, the word reminds her of blob or something, mm. and it just sounds disgusting to her. But I think the whole process is revolting to her because... Yeah, I think what she's done is she's um, identified with the desire of her father. She's been an obedient daughter, in a sense. I mean, she already had an interest in fashion anyway. Like, that already pre-existed what he said to her about being the editor of Vogue. Mm-hmm. So she already was in that area anyway. She, she clearly is talented um, in, in this industry. It's the fact that he instructed her that she had to be editor. Yeah. That's what she's identified with. She's just identified, he's been her mirror in terms of what level she needs to reach. And the fact that her daughter, B. Schaefer, said in the documentary that she has no in- interest or intention of working in the fashion industry. She says she considers it a very weird industry and she wants to go to law school. And Anna's reaction was so fascinating. She's like, well, we'll see. It's early days. Mm-hmm. Because she, for her, it, it feels probably like an anomaly that her own child wouldn't follow in her footsteps, you know, that she, she wouldn't pick up on the legacy that Anna's leaving behind. Um, because that's that's what feels, I, I'm speculating, I mean, it's just conjecture, but I'm thinking 
that's what feels natural to her because that's what she did. Yeah. Well, the whole family are editors. The whole family are editors. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So for me, it just seemed like a good uh, in re- in relation to consuming of corruption. I think the corruption here is that someone at the very helm of such an influential publication in, in fashion has her own crisis and her own struggles with fashion itself. Mm. Um, so in a way, it comes across as a corrupting influence in a sense because she's always placing obstacles in the way of the creative types, yeah, people she like is. Grace and the designers. I mean, it's a it's a paradox that um, exists all through creativity, though. Yeah. So in a way, she's actually just doing what <laughs> most holds. most artists will do for themselves or for other people. You know, so you yeah. could see her as actually uh, the greatest patron. Of the arts that there is, because art, like creativity, doesn't con- doesn't exist without constraint. You no. can't just have unbridled creativity. That's true. Uh, I'm just I. <laughs> so true. I, it's so easy for me to step into like the really conservative uh, devil's advocate, and uh, it makes me worry about myself. But um, uh, I was thinking about Muchia yeah. Prada, mm-hmm. who says that she will take um, a subject or an item or uh, an aesthetic that she doesn't like and make it make a collection around it really? yeah um that bothers her wow. as, uh, as you mary told me earlier that in america in north america if so you have a crush on someone you say they bother me yeah. and i'm really enjoying <laughs> i'm just really enjoying that um but uh that's kind of what anna's done she's taken something she feels mm. it clearly feels very shame shameful about and made it into oh, her wow. career and that's interesting and you know, she and she does she does throw up obstacles all the time. But none of these people stop creating. No, that's they true. They come back at her with, with more with more ideas, with more shoes. Yeah. And you're they right. argue with her, you know? <laughs> like Mario Testino like actually withholds photographs yeah. from her because he's not happy with them. He doesn't care that there's like a, a column dress in one of them or whatever it is. Yeah. Um so I do think that she's um You're right, that she's actually. she's actually Really playing into the the essential component of the creativity needs, mm-hmm. which is is that is an obstacle. Wow, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. She's a martyr. <laughs> <laughs> She's a saint. Oh my god, <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah, Grace should do a fashion story on that the very theory you just put forward. Yeah, that's such so. a great. Yeah, you're right. In a way, you're absolutely right because um, it is the case that creativity is probably would probably suffer and become probably be, become very eroded yeah. if there was no one placing boundaries and saying no you can't do that and there is no one placing boundaries yeah. anymore and that's possibly what she that's what so she true. was so frightened about in in terms of blogging or instagram <laughs> or whatever there isn't no, there are no boundaries no. on that creativity no and um, it does and and it does threaten to overwhelm us wow. it does threaten to, it does threaten to engulf us completely in this life, life surrounded by images that you can never, that you can never get away from, in this yeah. never-ending feed of just too much, just too much, You're too sorry. much, too much of other people's crap, crap, which is probably what the majority of art is. You know, it's like only, only a few of us have. You know, well, I suppose I think all our crap is valuable to someone, but. You know, it's only a, that ten percent of that yeah. of that um, psychological rubbish that 
is is worth something. Yeah. And that is really good. I know. It's really good and it's deserving of the audience it gets. Mm. Whereas now I go I'll, I'll look on my Instagram feed and it's like, why is this stupid picture getting 150,000 likes? It doesn't deserve it. And it's always those it's always yeah, very very normal pictures that are getting all those likes and it does speak to the comfort that we need from imagery. Yeah. Like, oh, this is what I recognize. This person looks like me, you know, to, enough to an extent. Yeah. And so I like it. And when it's something that's got a little bit more darkness in it, it's much less. I find that with I, I run yeah. four Instagrams at this point, yeah. and uh, the things that I the things that I deeply treasure and I post is something that is hugely influential to me and an important part of my creativity and personality and psyche. Seven likes. Yeah, a picture of me in a bikini like a hundred and I and it's so stupid but it's that's just the way things are people want to be comforted I know. and they don't want to they don't want your crap yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's so true yeah so in a way yeah maybe that she had good reason to be concerned yeah when she, she was does. she did view blogs with a great deal of suspicion mm. um yeah, and there's a lot to be said about, cur- you know, curators. Yeah, and that's, that is what she is. That's she's what she a harsh, is. harsh, yeah. harsh curator. Yeah. And she's a very traditional curator. Yeah. And she's blind to some things. Yeah. But yeah, there's a, her anxiety is not always, uh, is, there's, a, there's a very good reason for her anxiety, I would say, both personal and existential. I think so. She's mm-hmm. a very intriguing character. She's very good. She's, um, I really hope that they they do a sequel yeah yeah post instagram september issue because it will have changed so completely um you know it's so radically and it would be a really good story to tell because i think that message is still the same in terms of the the idea behind the mirror stage and how we relate to fashion and how we're looking at these um fashion stories as ideals that we strive to attain mm-hmm. Um, but also ones that are the ones that are accessible enough. Let's say the most iconic ones are probably the ones where we might see ourselves in that character. Yeah, we identify, and it's comforting. Um, so that I think that's never going to change. I was I don't know what you used to do, but when I was a kid, so when, I guess when I was like a preteen and right through high school and university, I would wait because it was this like little secondhand bookshop in my neighborhood that sold old like uh, issues of fashion magazines that were like just a couple of months old so they were quite recent mm. but they were like ridiculously reduced price so I wouldn't I wouldn't like like let's say the September issue I wouldn't pay like the four dollars for it yeah. I would wait two months and I could buy it for 10 cents so oh, that's I, really good it's really good mm. so I and so my room a section of my room was just piles and piles and piles of fashion magazines, usually Vogue and Bazaar, and I would sit and painstakingly uh, cut things out. Cut things out. Yeah, I would you do that too. too. Just oh like, which I now consider, it's like, how could, I, how could I have taken a pair of scissors to a book in that way? Like, I now, I now really prize, like, you know, yeah. things that are in their hole. How could yeah. I possibly have, like, ripped something away from its context in that terrible way? I'll never know. know where it came from. Just, be, just because it fit into, and I had this, 
I had this wardrobe, I had this huge, I had for some reason the master bedroom in my house that I lived in with my mum and sister. Uh-huh. I think I might have been a bit of a monster. Anyway, um, and I had this wardrobe, this huge like double wardrobe and the inside was painted purple and then it had fashion images like collaged. Oh my God, I think collages. Really? That's so funny. Yeah, just everything was just like Yeah, covered. like wall to wall. Wall to wall. Yeah. And I don't think it exists anymore. My dad because my dad moved into the house and he took it all down but before he took it all down he um like took photographs of everything but every i think i varnished over it or something so i couldn't it had to just be painted over but somewhere in like if someone like paint like chisels away at the paint like in a hundred years they'll find this weird like 2006 (laughs) 2005 2007 like collage of images oh my god it's so interesting that i had the compulsion to do the same Mm. thing yeah, I was obsessed. And I, I put it in collages. my wardrobe so that I could see it as I was I put dressed. them in my wardrobe. Yeah. I put them in my locker at yeah. school. Like, the whole door of the locker inside was just, like, pasted mm. fashion images. What were your favorite campaigns? Um, I really liked... Uh, there was a Hugo Boss one that I really liked. It had... I can't remember the actress that it had. It had mm. a sort of, like, watery... Like, pale-eyed, like, watery-eyed actress with mm. dark, dark hair. And she's in a trench coat and she's got like, and she looks like she's been crying and she just looks oh, yeah. like she's like a bit having a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I liked it so much, just loved it. Wow. Like I loved like Glamorous Misery mm-hmm. so much. Um, Tortured Beauty. Tortured Beauty. I just thought it was such, <laughs> she had like kind of tear streaks. It was just like actually a really disturbing image. Love but I, it. Was, but it was Hugo Boss, so it's really pared back. And, and then there was the same model in like with all of these like naked men i can't they had these amazing campaigns now i can't find any of them but i swear to god they existed um i really liked um but i just collected i think yeah. i it was the beginning of spilt milk probably oh, yeah. i just collected sad women amazing yeah i love that but oh my i god. and like i liked i liked fashion st- i liked a lot of all like the really sexy fashion store again i think i didn't yeah. have any porn so i was collecting all the fashion stories with boobs and and <laughs> yeah what did you what did you collect um, I loved Mugler's um, oh, perfume yeah. advert. Of course you did. Just all of that high glam stuff. Mm-hmm. I was really into that. Like really exaggerated makeup, like really pronounced features. Um, just, yeah, I loved all that. I really like Linda Evangelista, mm-hmm. um, I think in Versace. I really enjoyed that. I always say, if I could have chosen a period of fashion and a place, like a geographical location and and period of fashion, and to have chosen to live there at the age of, like, let's say, 22, 23, it would have been London, 1989. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that is definitely an important period of fashion. You know? Yeah. Like, just all the kind of cool neutral colors and like the high-waisted jeans mm-hmm. and the trainers like the white crisp trainers and the like the Juliette Binoche style hair you know the bob and listening to in excess on the tube <laughs> like on your walkman that's just real oh my now. god it's so <laughs> okay so from corruption to consumption yeah the neon demon neon demon and i thought that the perfect segue from the september issue to this would actually be be to kind of talk about continuing on the kind of discussion about identity formation and the mirror stage actually delve more into what Lacan called this idea this theory called name of the father 
So this is the process of identi identity formation, um, moving on from self-recognition and a reflective device. It's much more to do with, a, it's a linguistic, it's kind of moving from the imaginary to the symbolic mm -hmm. in terms of sort of initiation into the symbolic order the, of language. And here now the child begins to acknowledge a kind of structuring agency of a particular discourse. So they identify what has the power to uh, define the nature of the language, the nature of the discourse. And then starts to define him or herself um, within the parameters imposed by this kind of structuring agency. So for Lacan being a post-structuralist, uh, he didn't, I mean, Freud talked about like penis envy, which is, I think, just like a debunked theory. It's like a kind of absurd idea. I don't mm -hmm. buy into that, even though I'm a, you know, um, a faithful follower of Freud. I thought you were going to say, even though I like love penises. <laughs> I should have said that. <laughs> I, 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 did, I didn't even flinch. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, oh my yeah, God, does. that's she a does. best opportunity she for me. She really like penises. I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... But so, because Freud identified power with like the anatomy, so for him, identity was you know, biology was destiny. Whereas for Lacan, he was a post-structuralist, so he, for him, it didn't matter whether someone had a physical penis or not. He was more interested in the kind of symbolic uh, centers of power, the kind of um, agent, you know, the, the structuring agencies of power which can be held by a woman or a man. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they can be transferred between genders and, and you know, genders in between women and men as well. So for him, he talked about, um, what he was talking about was more the kind of power, a phallic power, mm -hmm. which actually has nothing to do with the penis. It's just the words that's been re kind of repurposed from Freud, but to mean that it's just basically a kind of place where power is hoarded and power is centered. The, the phallus is basically a signifier of the distribution of power, a mark of authority, and a mark of social position. Um, and the reason I bring this up is because the neon demon, uh, so this is a 2016 um, psychological horror film. It's a co-production of Denmark and the US, directed by... Uh, the Danish filmmaker Nicholas Winding Refn. Is this how, is this how you pronounce his name? Uh, I've always said. How have I always said it? Yeah, Nicholas Winding Refn. Yeah. Yeah. Or Winding. Winding. Maybe it's Winding. Mm. Yeah. Uh, maybe Winding. I think I've, said, I've always said. Now that you've asked me, I can't yeah. remember what I used what I usually <laughs> say, but I think I say Nicholas Winding Refn. Yeah. yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. So he's. This is a film that um, is really very much centered around the fascination that's generated from a particular model's beauty and the kind of impact it has and also the jealousy it inspires within the fashion industry. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the, the story revolves around a 16-year-old model, Jessie. And she's played by Elle Fanning. Um, and she's just moved from her small town of, in Georgia to Los Angeles, which typically I wouldn't have maybe identified Los Angeles as a major player in the fashion industry? No, it's really not. I mean, they it, it's sort of, there's, there's a kind of um, uh, a bit of exposition by Christina Hendricks, who plays um, the model agent, 
who kind of says, you know, if you do well here, then yeah. we'll, we'll go to New York. It's, it's sort of explained to be kind of a starting out place. Yeah. But I still think the location of LA is very important. It is very important. Um, I don't think it could have been anywhere else. I don't think the film yeah. worked in New York I at agree. all. It had to be LA. It had to be in LA. Um, and that's just because of you don't have quite that same association with with people dying to be famous, yeah. literally dying to be famous yeah. in New York. No. Or Paris or, pa- or, or anywhere. Yeah. And, but just LA is the place. Yeah. There's where, that hunger. Yeah. Where people have literally like jumped off the Hollywood sign because yeah. they weren't successful actress. Yeah. You can't have you can't have the ghosts of those things anywhere else. No. So it had to be said. It had to be in LA. Absolutely. And I agree. For that reason it kind of goes with a lot of like a uh, with a lot of like dark Hollywood films like Mulholland Drive, yeah. or Starry Eyes, yeah, it's it's they it kind of it could work as as like one of those films, and also the fact that it. it's got a cast that is a mixture of models, models oh, and yeah. actresses. That's true. Elle Fanning wouldn't actually in reality. Elle Fanning wouldn't necessarily. Well, actually, she probably would. She does. She does now. She is yeah. like she's like a face of L'Oreal. Yeah. But ten years ago, Elle Fanning wouldn't have been a model. She would have definitely no. been an actress. She would have been. A, yeah, you're right. And Abby Lee, who is who we're supposed to believe is the actress, the model that's no longer wanted. Oh yeah. Is like pure model. Like her yeah. body is like insane. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I I absolutely agree that that the the representation of that this kind of hunger that doesn't go away. Mm. It's this persistent drive, this persistent aching hunger of you would do anything, this kind of um, being prepared to sacrifice anything or anyone to get ahead. Mm-hmm. That's LA is a much better location to depict that desire. I agree. Um, so her character, Jessie, so she's 16, but she's being advised by the um, model agent, uh, played by Christina Hendricks, to say that she's 19. Yeah. Um, and so she meets uh, a makeup artist called Ruby. And she's, is she played by Jenna Malone? Yeah, she's played brilliantly. Everyone's so good in this, but Jenna Malone is the best. Oh my God, she's best. amazing. She's really good. She's so weird. Yeah. Jenna Malone, who really hasn't aged as well, so it's Sunny Darker. She's kind of looks exactly the same. She was in contact. She was... The the bait, you know, the younger Jodie Foster. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Jenna Malone's been around for She's years. so cool. Um she's also in a film that I really liked called Love Song. Did oh, you see yeah. that? I have seen that. Um I really I really enjoyed that. It's Riley really Keo and Jenna Malone are yeah, like yeah. friends and they have a, a night together. Yeah. And then That's a great go film. off and, yeah, it's like it's really lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love her. Um so she plays a makeup artist called Ruby, and she introduces Jesse to older, well, not by that many years, but slightly older models, um, Sarah and Gigi. Mm. Okay, so Gigi, Gigi. <laughs> so, the, but the three women, the two models and the makeup artist, they're very intrigued by Jesse's natural beauty, uh, and they're very curious also about her, like her sexual proclivities. Mm. There's a lot of like fixation on that. Um, there's a bit in the bathroom where they where they're all talking about their lipsticks in yeah. general and it's just women but are more likely to buy lipstick if it's named after food or sex sex yeah and say which are you food or sex which is is going to be very telling a bit later on yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> I mean you get the sense that she's a virgin yeah Jessie which yeah, fine yeah she's, 16. she's only 16 so yeah you're right it makes it's not that uh, far-fetched yeah but you also get the sense that she 
is a very self-aware in a sense, and she doesn't. She she she's already a little bit concerned with projecting a certain image. Mm. Um, but yeah, what's really interesting to me, there's several scenes right at the beginning that tell me that potentially the idea of the name of the father might be a good theoretical starting point to approach this film because she hasn't been in LA that long, but she's already taking the town by storm. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a very, very uh, highly coveted photographer takes interest in her and there's a great scene where she she's told to get undressed at this photo shoot and the photographer covers her in gold paint mm. um and he it's really interesting he's so tactile with her like he takes all this gold pigment and he just like smears her smears it all over her shoulders and her chest well that's a recurring theme yeah so the first scene that we see is her um sort of lying as if she's a, a murder a murder yeah. victim in a, on a very and it's interesting because we were previously sneering at um at shoots that do that but aren't fashion yeah and this is one of those shoots it which is. is later sneered at by the um model agent yeah. um so and it's her just covered in fake blood in a mm. in a gown uh, and, ju- and she's got like jewels on her face yeah and that's by the uh young photographer young unsuccessful photographer whose name is Dean. Then the uh, photographer played by that guy from Dexter is uh, covers her in gold paint. Yeah. Uh, the fashion designer gives her a dress that looks like it's dripping. Oh yeah. And then then like right at the end you have a lot of like liquid like dripping liquids. You dripping have like the, the girl like sorry, spoiler. Is the girl's bathing in her blood? Yeah. Uh, you have a blood cut, like coming out of, like inexplicably coming out of yeah. Jenna Malone. That scene um, is so weird. But I don't know. I mean, initially it just it just kind of um, all felt like a like a yeah, replacement for semen. Like that yeah. these men just like cover her in liquid as soon as they meet her. Yeah. So kind of almost like bukkake or something. Yeah. Like being completely immersed. Yeah. <laughs> in, but, She's always cleaning herself off. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's something else also that occurred to me is that, in a way, the gold pigment especially, because mm-hmm. he is kind of directing the shoot, yeah. and he is instructing her to look a certain way. She has very interesting makeup as well. And um, because he's so, I guess, he's such a desirable figure in the industry, all the models want to work with, with him, his gaze is very valuable. It's yes. like a hot, hot commodity. And... She's she becomes like his golden child. Mm. It's like he's anointing her with his gaze. He's is the statement being made that she's now kind of being baptized in the glow of his glare, you know, in his glare. And then you have this really cool kind of little segment where she's just being photographed, and it's like the light is flickering. It's really interesting. Mm. Uh, he's just taking multiple shots of her. And because his camera, he's also holding his camera lens, like it's very phallic. It's like he's coming all over her. Yeah, you it know? is. Uh, but, he, but it's like very special, like she's been chosen. She's like the golden child, the, the chosen one. That starts to then hoard all the power. She, but she's, can, she's got that power all the way through the film. Oh, yeah. She doesn't, it's not, and that's the thing, I think even uh, Nicholas Winding Refn in interviews yeah. has said that the men aren't important. 
no. in this film. He says they just they move the story along. Yeah. And even he specifically talked about that character, that photographer. He said he's just a portal. Yeah. Like he's he's in possession of the gaze, but the gaze is a substitute for the gaze of the audience and the fashion Absolutely. consumer. So he's just he's some he's yeah, he's just something through which that gaze tr- is running through him. Yeah. Um and it's the same with all of the men in, in the film. They're not important. No. Important she already she already has it. She already has it. Yeah. And I and I'm very interested in, in her I find her a very mysterious character because mm. we're supposed to believe that... I mean, we, I don't know if we are supposed to believe that she becomes corrupted over the course of the film. She's always corrupt. Yeah. Like, where are her parents? Yeah. Why aren't they... Like, why aren't they there? Why she's is she by herself? She's underage. She's not that... She's not, she's not really that nice. No. She looks nice. She looks beautiful. She looks like she'd be... She, like, her looks stand in for any... Mm. kind of actual goodness or decency mm. she just falls in with things mm. um she's a, a victim at some points but she you know she's she's looked after by other people yeah all the time and i am um, yeah i'm always i'm really interested with that they they can that she looks like she embodies goodness but she doesn't embody anything no really and the only like defining thing about her is that she thinks of the moon as an eye <laughs> it's true like she's just, she just, like, and she's perfectly. There's all of those scenes where she, you know, people react to her, and she has this little smile because you know. And then she says at the end, "Yeah, my mother's called me. My mother called yeah. me a dangerous girl." Yeah. So it's not that she's she's come to LA and become she corrupted. She, no. She's brought something really bad yeah. with her. There's something evil There's something going really on. Really evil about her. I agree. I completely agree. I don't think it's the it's the industry itself that has taken this sweet, innocent girl mm-hmm. and spat out this monster. It, and, and I agree. I don't. I also don't think that the men in the film, like including that photographer, but also the casting agent and the, you know the designer, yeah, who she has to audition for. They they do the walk. But yeah, he does that, ridic- he has that ridiculous reaction to her. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. She. I mean, he, he. She seems to like cast some kind of spell because objectively, all the all the models, all the girls, are really film, beautiful. They're all very beautiful. Yeah. They're all. But I mean, she's lit differently, isn't she? She's, she's lit differently. Yeah. There's. It's yeah. Like she's got light emanating from yeah. her. And Abby Lee is really well chosen because she is a, she is almost uh, she's like post heroin chic, but she's she's post heroin chic. She's uh, she looks a little bit ill, yeah. in the most great like she's like my perfect mm. model, but she does like her eyes are a little bit glassy and, you know she's uh, her face is a little bit hollow, mm-hmm. and she is in like really I mean she can be made to look Lolita esque. Yeah. But she's always in kind of really risque shoots. She's a lot. Of, she's a, one of the Richard Prince girls on the motorbike. Yeah. She's a, like her modeling history is very tied up with like sex and drugs and rock and roll and death. Oh yeah. So her brand is a, a bit closer to death than it is to like Anna Winters. Wow. And and Elle Fanning's it looks very very much alive. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and there's that scene where just af- you know just after the um, the moment. Yeah, when she, when she impresses the designer mm. at, with her walk, um, when she goes into the bathroom, that's a really interesting scene. That's one of my favorite scenes in the whole film. Me too. Um, where is is it at that point? I can't remember. Is it? It's it's Gigi, isn't it? No, it's Sarah. It's Sarah. Sorry, it is Sarah. It is Sarah. So it's Sarah who. Um, so she hasn't been selected, mm-hmm. um, and she. 
smashes a mirror. That's a, that's interesting to me. The mirror stage no longer having its function, its reassuring function. You know, it's now suddenly this uh, reminder, this harbinger of bad news. Yeah, she smashes the mirror with her portfolio. With her she portfolio. She starts ripping up the pictures. She starts ripping up the pictures. Um, and then Jesse walks in and, and Sarah says, people see you, they notice you. Uh, do you know how lucky you are? I'm a ghost. Mm. I love that line. And then as the, the minute she says I'm a ghost, she also exhales cigarette smoke. Yeah. And her face is kind of like shrouded in, in smoke. It's really interesting. Um, she's so good in that. And um, and she asks she asked Jesse, how does it feel uh, to, to, you know, to have that, I, I guess, to have that That's effect on people, yeah. have that power. And... She says... It's everything. It's everything. Mm. Uh, yeah, there's a great line also about it being in the dead of winter, you're the sun or mm. something. Yeah, so for me, this is all kind of, in a way, uh, corroborating the theory of the name of the father. You know, someone having the phallus. You know, she has it. She's like the it girl. Mm. You know, she, whatever it is, there's something about her, something about her aura or what people attribute to her that actually you probably couldn't put a cigarette paper between her and the other models no. on paper they probably have the same dimensions you know similar kind of features hair color etc but she actually claims a certain mark like a certain mark or, or social position in that world and no one can take it away from her mm -hmm. the only way to eliminate her as a threat is to completely consume her which they do. Which they do. Which is such a great ending and not what I expected at all. No. I mean, there's a lot that goes on before that that I think is worth talking about. Oh, yeah. Ruby's a really good character, a really yeah. interesting character. Yeah. Um, I mean, they all are, all the girls. I actually really like them. Yeah, they have too. great. They, have, they all have great lines. Yeah. But I think Gigi's very funny. Yeah, so Gigi's the one who was... She, she's the one, the bionic woman. The, yeah, she's yeah. got so much plastic surgery. That's right. That's the one, um, yeah. That she's, like, completely fictional. Yeah. Like, her looks... And then Abby is, uh, I mean, if you think of them as a coven of witches, which I think a lot of people have. Yeah. Um, I've, like, been to a paper being presented on the Neon Doom as a witch film, which I think it is. Yeah. Um, you have uh, Jenna Malone, who is, like, the, she's, like, the like, the leader. Yeah. Um, and then Sarah is, like, she's, like, the world-weary. She's been around forever, mm -hmm. it seems like. She's the, she's like... She's a little bit jaded. She's jaded. Yeah. And then, um, Gigi's like the new, the new one, like the new excitable, yeah. like maiden kind of character. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I've like completely lost my train of thought. Yeah, so Ruby is, but Ruby tries to seduce Jessie. Yeah. And is rejected. And Jessie's power, I think, comes in the fact that no one can fuck her. Exactly. Exactly. At all, which is exactly what you want from a model. You want them yeah. like uh, there's there's a some kind of a, like academic theory that talks about the uh, the classical body, the like the classic like the uh, they're talking about male bodies, like classical Greek sculpture. Yeah. And the it, the reason that it's uh, so beautiful is that it's orificeless, it's smooth and orificeless. Mm. Um, and there's power in not being able to be fucked. Mm. Um, wow. And they say that at the beginning, you know, and Sarah says that in the beginning. She says, you know. When when you walk into a room, people are thinking, "Who's she fucking? Who could she fuck?" Yeah, and it's clear that Sarah's fucked everybody. Yeah, and 
it's and it's that one of those unfortunate things about desire that when someone someone's fucked you they don't really want to again like mm. not in the same way no. and so no one fucks jesse and that's why she's got so much power yeah <laughs> that's why i'm convinced that jesse's not even a real person no, she's just she's just like an embodiment of of desire yeah, yeah exactly exactly and that's what makes her so powerful yeah um that and that's what means that she herself there's nothing she could do to uh eliminate her power she just she she's just there for consumption she's just there for um for other people to embody yeah so she herself i think is the perfect kind of phallic woman in mm -hmm. a sense because she is um some she's she's presented as that thing that that spellbinding creature that's why i think it is true that it's a, people are correct to look at this film as a, as about witchcraft yeah because she's kind of a sorceress she's she can just walk in a room and illuminate mm -hmm. you know she's the sun but she can't be part of that coven because she's got nothing to give no at all no and they can't they, because she is orificeless because she's because you can't get she's into not her fuckable, yeah. she's not fuckable and that but that also means she's not like giving no she doesn't have anything she doesn't have anything to contribute no so she can't join their she no. can't join their coven no she has to be destroyed that's right you can't get into her yeah so you get her into you yeah you eat her alive um th th that scene when she walks uh the catwalk and she stares at her reflection and mm -hmm. the kind of strange the triangle the triangle what do you think about that what do you think that because it's in the at the end of the catwalk is an actual neon triangle mm -hmm. and we're and the names maybe kind of seems to be alluding that that's what the demon is because it, it seems to possess her. It does, but I mean, it, it's uh, it's at that point where she loses all... I mean, what I see is pretense for being, okay. um, you know, sweet. Where uh, she doesn't she doesn't seem... To, she doesn't feel she needs it anymore. Okay. Um, which is probably her, down, which is her downfall a little bit. Yeah. Um, because she's she's not... She becomes much more closely aligned with the other, other models mm. at that point and kind of rejects her, like, suitor. Um, oh, Yeah. And that's the breaking point. That's the breaking point. Well, it's like midway through the film, so it yeah. is. Um, I mean, I it's it, I guess it's that triangle that really cements it as a witch film. It is like a, a satanic symbol. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. That's what I thought of it as well. Yeah, and it's not possible for them all to exist because there's four of them, so one yeah. of them's got to go. <laughs> Three is the magic number. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, the triangle. Um, yeah. Um, but. Also, it's just the way that she stares at her own reflection as well. Yeah, it's like a moment of pure narcissism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's that moment of, it's the mirror is not just this reassuring, momentarily like re, you know soothing, momentarily like uh, reassuring device that tells you, don't worry, people, you know, I'll keep your secret. No one will know mm -hmm. that you're a hot mess because this is how you look like. So people will like that. Um, she t it, that, in that scene, I feel like it goes a, a kind of bridge too far in a sense because it's no longer just a, a, an innocent soothing device. Yeah. It's something else. Yeah. It's like, it, you're right, it's like wholly narcissistic. It's so, it's just so amplified as if every which direction she looks, there's a reflection of her there. Mm -hmm. 
and it's she becomes kind of ubiquitous in the in the, in a similar way that sometimes these beauty ideals just traverse so many areas of culture there's they, they're so pervasive uh, that that's when they acquire a kind of dangerous quality because you know when she's she does say at the end you know women will do anything to look like me mm. you know they carve stuff and starve themselves uh, but they only become a second rate version of me that's what she says so it's, but she kind of says that with kind of glee yeah she didn't say that kind of lamenting the situation she kind of takes pride in that so it's, i like that scene because it makes me think of psychologically what happens in, in and experientially what happens you know kind of how how these images kind of have a possessing quality like demonic yeah i, I agree yeah. and it's uh interesting that she does kind of replicate and replicate in that scene because it kind of mirrors the way that um that we will eventually grow weary of something we see too much yeah. and Elle Fanning's kind of an example of that because there is yeah. that year and the ensuing years we saw too much of Elle Fanning. Do you not think? I agree. I'm like, and it's I have Elle Fanning fatigue. Elle Fanning fatigue. And she's amazing. And I'm sure oh, yeah, she'll be her, in yeah. thousands of other things and be incredibly good. But, but she was everywhere. We need a break from Elle Fanning. Because <laughs> there's a little bit too much of her. Um, as, as, you know, there's nothing against Elle Fanning. It happens no, a no. lot with actors yeah. and actresses that you just see them too much. Yeah. Um, because, you know, once you... They're in demand. Yeah, they're yeah. in demand and you have to feed that, that ravenous yeah. demand. Um, oh yeah, I'm not sure that it's a very, very important sequence that runway scene. Mm. But I, I just think it, it sort of just serves to eradicate anything, anything ab about her insides that are important. The only mm. thing about her her insides is like their nutritious value yeah. to the people yeah. that are later going to eat them. There's really nothing in there. No. Um, nothing at all. Like no. she's just there to, she's just there to cause. Maybe I suppose. In the beginning, in the first half of the film, she causes pleasure, and in the second half of the film, she just causes pain. But don't you think also because she, because she so just in terms of like Jenna Malone's character uh, Ruby, mm. so we know that she, she she works in the fashion industry as a makeup artist, but she also moonlights in a in a morgue, in a morgue. which is very unlikely. Yeah, I mean, actually, maybe it's not. I I know that fashion is notorious for not actually paying very well. Yeah, um, and that. That job of a morgue makeup artist is endlessly fascinating, don't I you know. think? And it actually crops up in film a lot. Yeah, film, it does. Filmmakers like it as a device. They, we've got um, well, the ha the haunting of House Hill. Hill House. Oh, it keeps. Why do I keep doing it? You because need to edit just, this out. It's fine. Please, this is a blooper. Um, it's it's fine. It happens to us all. Um, the haunting of House. <laughs> what is it? The haunting of Hill House. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah, she is, well, she's a morgue everything, which I think is more what it would be. I don't think it's mm. that, it's not that you get in a makeup artist to do, it's that people who do embalming yeah. also do makeup. So that's actually, I think, a much oh, more yeah. realistic yeah. approach to it. But you've got, you've, throughout film history, actually, I'm going to try, you know what, I'm going to try and make a movie list or a letterbox list yeah. of this. You've got um, uh, Chris... Uh, Kirsten Dunst in Drop Dead Gorgeous mm. it's, it's her after school job like they'd let oh, like yeah. a high school student come and like paint the dead um, I would have been well up for that yeah I know you would <laughs> I would have too but and that's the thing that, that there is like this trope in cinema yeah. of the morgue makeup artist and 
I've definitely been interested in that job as well because I was like, oh, that's an easy thing to do, just waltz in and put some blusher on a bottle of corpse. Um, this film has a, there's a short film by um, Jamie Babbitt, the uh, yeah. director of I'm a Cheerleader, called Sleeping Beauties, which oh, is yeah. about a mold makeup artist. It's a very good film, if you can find it. Um, there is, there's something else as well. There's all sorts of mold makeup artists in film. It's fascinating. And it is fascinating. It's, it is a, it's kind of an enduring pre- preoccupation. It is. Um, because I think that there is some kind of overlap between, um, makeup artists who, you know, work with, with corpses Mm -hmm. and filmmakers, Mm. you know, there's something there for sure. Filmmakers certainly have their preoccupations and the film industry in general, they have a preoccupation with mold makeup artists. They really do. And it's, you know, it's everywhere. what we're like trying to explore, why this preoccupation with fashion and death exists. And it exists in film. It's not just no, that we all have yeah. it. It's that filmmakers have identified it as a source oh, yeah. of endless fascination. But it is also interesting in the film, in, in The Neon Demon, the fact that Ruby is a necrophile. Yes, she is. She not only paints corpses, but she also um, has sex with them. <laughs> in a very difficult to watch scene. Oh my um, god! I mean, it's pretty gross. It's pretty gross. And it's, it's very not, graphic. It's very. It's like a, and it's a. It is again. If you, if you notice, it's a second-rate version of Elle Fanning on yeah. the table. Very important. I think so because later on, it's like in a way that necrophilia is transferred. It's sort of displaced from. Uh, you know the corpses of the morgue to Jessie mm. because we we see her uh, fantasizing about Jessie while having necrophilia you know necrophiliac desires necrophile desires um, so what I'm thinking is that if that's if, if we take if we kind of follow that through to, to its logical conclusion it's almost as if it's kind of saying that because you've been rightly saying all the way through that Jesse, there's nothing there. It's like there's a, it's kind of like a performance, but mm. there's there's no real identity there. There's nothing behind this kind of luminous beauty. Let's and say and she doesn't give you anything. Just she like doesn't that give you anything. Doesn't give, exactly. Doesn't give Jennifer anything. Exactly, exactly, and that's why she works much better as a theoretical construct, as a kind of symbolic or allegorical uh, entity. Mm. Uh, psychological, you know, process um, that has to do with hoarding power, uh, has to do with kind of, um, yeah, I suppose, uh, being an object of desire. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, actually, importantly, just returning back to um, the name of the father, something that structures, you know, actually structures a discourse. So... Her, it's often the presence of these it girls and these kind of like, let's say, very highly valued figures in certain industries that then tends to shape the, that very discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all talk about her all the time. They, they always talk about her. They're mm-hmm. obsessed. They're completely obsessed with her. People will start to define themselves within the param- parameters that she then defines. Mm-hmm. So that you know, she imposes. So I think. In that regard, it's like she's kind of like death because death defines life. Mm-hmm. You know, death is the the kind of limits of our life, and we have if we if we were all immortal, um, in a way, what meaning would life really have? What would really matter? It's the fact that we all die 
that means that life has to take some kind of purpose and meaning mm -hmm. because we only have a limited time. So she is, in a sense, it girls and people like her who have this kind of impact, uh, real game changers, they're death, I think. God, that's very interesting because I've always felt that Kate Moss was an embodiment of death. Yeah. She's an embodiment of death, but she's also the embodiment of... Um, that she's also really the embodiment of the kind of anxiety that drives people like Anna Winter. Yeah. And that we were talking about in our um, way back in our Happy New Year Colin Bursted episode. Yeah. Um, she's, I was actually thinking about her in that episode yeah. because of her quote of why can't I have fun all the time. Oh yeah. That quote terrifies me. It's like, because you can't. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> it really, really scares me when people have that kind of attitude. But she is, she is the, she is the, she definitely is, she is the, what everyone else kind of measures themselves up against. And she's kind of everlasting. She's yeah. always there. She's always this kind of spectre. Yeah. Against which other, you know, other models are measured. Yeah. Kate Moss, you're deaf. Yeah, they become the undead. Yeah, she is. Well, she basically is. Yeah. So many lives. So many lives. So, so many, so much risk taking. Yeah. Um, and so much like self-destructive behavior yeah. which we're all just incredibly like endlessly fascinated with yeah um bad boyfriends bad boyfriends oh she is yeah and um <laughs> uh going back to your idea of the um the sort of the empty vessel on which we project desires yeah. um this is what i just said is going to sound really insulting in terms of what i'm next going to say um nicholas uh or wendy greffin uh said that he made this film based on his uh, desire to be a 16-year-old girl. Do you remember oh, yeah. that quote? I do remember him saying so, that. And um, that's an interesting quote. Yeah. Um, what does it mean to desire to be oh a 16-year-old girl? Because 16-year-old girls, as much as, you know, I remember, I have fondness for the memory of myself age 16. In comparison to myself now, I... I had very little in me, you know, or what I did have was very, was not stable. It yeah. was not a stable identity. No. It was a very, it was a very malleable identity. It was an identity that was full to the brim of um, ideas and fantasies of my future, but they didn't really have any, like, any, it had some stable, it was some stable personality traits in there, but they weren't the strong traits that they are no. today. And what is that desire to be, to be that, to be... Is it a desire to start to start again? Is it a desire to be a clean slate, create like as a creator, or or? But as why a, specifically? Yeah, I suppose. I'm and specifically a woman. I'm, you know. Yeah, you're right. Why specifically a woman? I I hate to I hate to even think this, let alone say it. But I wonder whether he said that because he thinks that. In the kind of society that we have, where there's so many strong elements of like misogyny, um, and and also fear of women, mm -hmm. but 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 certainly you know it's very patriarchal. Do you think that he was maybe alluding to the fact that our society is unhealthy in the way that it edify, you know, it, it it kind of places the 16 year old girl at the height of her powers, mm. and she's so seductive. You know, because she's so, um, she her, her identity and her even her brain is still physically still developing. I mean, it's, you know, we know that teenagers' brains continue to develop. Yeah. Um, so is it possible that he's almost making this very satirical 
kind of dark point. Uh, it's kind of almost maybe a condemnation of our sick society that tells women that they're at the height of their powers when they're 16. When they have none. Exactly. It's the, what it's life's greatest tragedy exactly, and Exactly. Exactly. That they, you know, that they're so attractive, you know, let's say, uh, that they can... I certainly wasn't, but continue. But the point being that, you know, the, that vulnerability and that kind of, let's say, insecurity and all the things that we feel at 16, um, that's what men want, mm. or that's what people want to emulate. That's what sells clothes. That's I mean, what... that's what women want as well. We're all like gaping at images of 16-year-old models. I know. And, and loving it. I know, it. exactly. So maybe that's what he was saying. Maybe that's, he was making, it was some kind of indictment, mm. you know, some kind of negative judgment of society by making a point that like that. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. That that's what he meant. But that's how I'm well, reading I mean, you it. Can have a, um, you can have an indictment of society um, and a uh, a desire all in one. Absolutely. You can, you can want yeah, you can, can want something that you together. know is not is not a healthy yeah. it's not a healthy want. Um, and that's the, the like the beauty of being a middle aged film director. Yeah. Is that you have the power to there's a lot of freedom that comes without with not being desired, actually. Yeah. But also kind of reinventing how you're desired. Yes, I suppose. Reclaiming the ways that you can be desired mm. without having to necessarily abide by those old rules dreamt up by other people. Yeah, you're right. Um, so it's, it, to me, that just makes kind of sense in a way, because even with the final scene, and you know... I love it. I love it too. It's my favorite thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> It's, so it's cool. my favorite scene of all time. It's when, so good. Oh my god. Okay, so let's describe it. Let's describe so it. So there's this blue photo shoot. Did you know that he's um, colorblind? I did not know that. Uh, a winding reference. Yeah, no, I didn't um, know that. And so they have to have oh like, my god. they have to have everything like really strong reds or really strong blues so they can't see it. <laughs> so that, I mean, I mean, what an wow. example of a, an obstacle leading to, Absolutely. you know, creative like wonder oh my god um so that's yeah anyway so there's this amazing blue photo shoot and it's uh, and it's in this like lovely like moment of peace after they've finished eating and bathing in the blood of Elle Fanning yeah um where the two models Sarah and Gigi are Sarah's gone to keep Gigi company on a shoot with the aforementioned uh photographer who's yeah. the guy from Dexter that's right who's a really good actor He's and I didn't realize how good he was yeah um and uh, he's and it's this, this shoot sort of in this like luxury LA house with this pool mm. and everything's very calm and cool and blue and um, Abby Lee looks beautiful and she's suddenly lit in the same way that Elle Fanning was and he fires the other model, other model and hires Abby Lee on the spot yeah and so they're both standing there being shot and all of the I love all of the sequences with shoots because they're so still mm. like that first scene where you see him and you can just hear oh, yeah. the, the lights warming up and then flashing and then warming up and then flashing but nothing moves mm. like models just stay the models are just yeah. still um and um so and so Sarah and Gigi are standing there in like to be photographed and, and Gigi starts like gagging yeah <laughs> and um, so event, it's so good and eventually and runs inside and Sarah follows her and she's going and she's she's like ripped all of her like these constraining clothes off and she's like, like gagging they're like they're like, yeah they're wearing these yeah. weird like corsets like kind of they almost look like um like a prosthetics or yeah. like surgical yeah. like um some, like some clinical yeah. Like, yeah there's like something kind of medical about them and mm. uh and she's and she's like 
just like breathing and like crying and, and gagging. And uh, she's, you know, she's saying, I've got to get her out of me. I've got to get her out of me. And eventually she throws up this eyeball. <laughs> and, um, and then that not being enough, uh, she takes a pair of scissors and tries to like, and cuts herself open and dies. Because it's unbearable having this. Such a high dosage. Such a high dosage of whatever it is that yeah. the that, that fanning is made of. Yeah. That it's unsustained. Like it's completely They've ingested that. Yeah. Too much beauty. Too much beauty. Too much it girl. Too much power. Too much phallus. Too much power. Yeah. Too much power. Yeah. And, and it's and it's and it's unbearable to Gigi, who's really, who's actually really quite sweet. Yeah. Um. And really, you know, doesn't have the is not made of strong stuff no. at all. She doesn't have the fortitude maybe to no. take that in herself no she doesn't you know she's the one who is so willing to change herself to please her plastic surgeon she, we're, we're even told that she fell in love with her surgeon yes yeah know? that's true she fell in love with someone who, who whose career was based on her not being telling her that she wasn't good enough she fell in love with henry higgins yeah she did you know she's like the eliza she's like the powerless eliza yeah. david so. But she is my favourite. I think she's funny. Yeah, I like her too. Um, Anna, Avonlea. <laughs> like when she in... says that she has her ears p- uh, pinned back so she can wear her to a ponytail. Yeah. It's such that's a great fun. line. Yeah. And, um, and Sarah yeah. watches all of it. It's so pretty. She's got this huge pair of sunglasses on. And the only reaction she has is that one of her, like one side of her upper, upper lip goes up. In this, and that's all. That's like the, her reaction to this entire yeah, this scene. Yeah, grotesque, disgusting. And then she like, and then she picks up this eyeball, oh my God. <laughs> and with like a little bit of drool coming out of her mouth, and just pops it in her mouth and swallows it, and walks back to the shoot. I love it so, so much. It's perfect, and it was completely shocking. It's one of the most shocking pieces of cinema that I've seen for yeah. a really long time because I had no idea it was going to happen yeah. when I saw it in the cinema, and I was by myself oh my because God. no one would come with me. Like I would have I, loved to come I with know, you. When was this? Was this before? This was before I met you. I think was, it was no. I, did, I had met you, but we oh, weren't. No. We no, it's 2016, so we had met. We'd met, yeah. but we didn't know each other that well. No, and I was. I texted. I remember that day. I texted everyone I knew. Do you want to come and see the Neon Demon? Do you want to come and see the Neon Demon? And oh. no one did. No one wanted to see it. So I went by myself. And it, there was no one even I could turn to and be like, oh my God. It was just, it just <laughs> happened. And uh, I don't know why I love it so much, but it's just perfect. That blue. It's perfect. Those, that acting, that just what happens, just the idea that someone had to like, yeah. again, someone had to throw her up. And it's the way, it, and it's, it's the it's the weight of, of power inside you that can't exactly. be translated that can't be translated outside. No. And and that's so interesting. And the fact that it flowed out and it was just readily consumed yeah. so greedily and unflinchingly uh, by Sarah. And it's what happens afterward that's also in, interesting. Yeah, the closing credits. The closing credits. Is, uh, which I never actually watched before because back in the day I didn't used to stay and watch credits. Yeah. And now every, projection listeners... Watch credits. Yeah, you get a, a lot habit. of information from yeah. credit from closing credits. Stay, stay until the lights come on. Ignore those people, like <laughs> ignore those employees, like picking up old popcorn boxes around you. They wish that you would go away, but don't. It's yeah. really important. So yeah, those closing credits are all Sarah. They're all Sarah. So she's the final girl. She's the final girl. Exactly. She's now uh, ingested all that power. She she has the phallus now. But she's 
I don't know what she's plotting, but where she is is interesting. She's just like on the beach. Yeah. Um, and it seems to be like maybe the California coastline somewhere. It's sort of unspecified. Mm. But she's just part of the landscape. I don't know. It's like she's... The way I read that was that she already had so much hunger in her to begin with. And the mere fact of the fact, you know, the fact that they ingested her, it sort of ties in with another theory that I uh, proposed when we were talking about the single, uh, a single man, mm -hmm. about mourning and melancholia. And um, one thing that Freud said about melancholia is that it's like an open wound drawing energies to itself. Um, and in a lot of films depicting depression, people are filmed eating very like compulsively. Oh yeah, we talked about this in the depression episode. We did. Uh, Juliet Binoche in um, Three Colors, Colors Blue. Blue. Uh, what's her name? Rooney Mara. Yeah. A ghost story. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but also I, Daniel Blake, you know, with the tin of Oh yeah, beans. of course. Yeah. yeah. And I think that in a sense, they've kind of gorged on something that they felt they had lost, mm -hmm. you know? So they, 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 it's kind of like being that in a, in that position, that situation of the model who's, you know, even though she's extremely young, she's probably only 22, 23, maybe in that kind of uh, very extreme world, she's probably seen as too old. Mm. So she might have already had a taste of having all, hoarding all the power and being the it girl, but now she's lost it. So in a way, it's a good. It's almost a good setup for a story of depression because it's something that used to belong to you that you've lost and you're grieving. That is true, and it does fit in with the way that depressives see other people, yeah. which is that they're just more whole. Yeah. Because that's the thing about the mirror stage. It's because the fact that you can't see other people's chaos is really actually tragic for for you if you are depressed because it would it would be so helpful to be able to see it. Exactly. And as soon and there is a scene earlier on where she does try and eat Elle Fanning when um, it yeah. is that, it's that scene after she uh, um, smashes the mirror yeah. um, Elle Fanning like, puts her hand on one of the shards and it cuts her hand and Sarah tries to, Sarah tries to lick her yeah. hand it's this cannibalistic desire yeah. of just trying to gorge on the very thing she feels she's lost mm -hmm. this perfect flesh you know, that everyone desires she used to have that but she doesn't anymore yeah, you're absolutely right. That's why horror films, we've discussed this as well, are so reassuring to people with, you know, neurotic types or depressive mm -hmm. types because it pulls that curtain wide open and we can see past the glossy exterior and we see the chaos. Yeah, that's true. Sometimes you literally see people's insides. Yeah. yeah. And it's quite reassuring because it's like we, we no longer are under this spell that everyone else is whole and we're broken. Mm -hmm. Actually, we can see past that. We can see that chaos is everywhere. There is so chaos reigns. Chaos reigns. <laughs> we love you, Lars von Trier. <laughs> Let's try and mention Lars von Trier in every episode, yeah. shall we? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that we should wrap this up because we've been talking for a long time. But there's so much we didn't talk about. All of the animals. Oh yeah. In the film, uh, Keanu Reeves' bizarre <laughs> character. Yeah. That awful scene where you know she has that. Oh yeah, and there's there is there is a lot about. People trying to put there's a lot more about people trying to put things in El Fanning. Like he tried, he she has a dream where he puts a knife in her that's mouth. That's right. And and it's just and it's a, and it's that's the nightmare. I mean, which is obviously She's a nightmare. But it's that someone's penetrating her yeah. more than someone's threatening her. And she's so 
un she's so unempathetic that when someone's getting raped in the hotel room next to her, she doesn't she doesn't think of them, she just thinks of herself. That's she's just right. like that's the the most horrifying thing that's happened near her. Yeah. In case, you know, because it, it's obviously like because everyone else is obviously a second rate version of her, it's something that it's something that should be happening to her. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot to this film. Um, I think and I think there's a lot of fans of this film, but I also think it's highly misunderstood it by is. people who who are detractors. I mean, I can see that on the surface it looks like a story of three girls that are jealous of one girl, and yeah. that's a terrible story to tell about women. <laughs> yeah. But that's not what it is. No. And I actually think of your reading of Abby, um, I should stop calling her Abby Lee, of Sarah yeah. as a depressive character is really, is a really good mm. reading. Because she is, she is like, she feels that she's not whole and that she's not enough and that she's depleted. Yeah. And that other she's people She's hollowed are, out. Yeah. Whereas actually she's she's not she's no. not at all she's much less hollow than a lot of the other characters absolutely in the film yeah um, she's got a lot she's she's incredibly resilient she yeah. survives until the end she's, she's a spider been, she's been there for a long time and she'll be there for a long time yeah which is is probably true of a lot of depressants because they've probably gone through that same illness several times it's not it's not one that goes away it's one that recurs yeah. Um, so maybe we should, oh, everything links back, everything is everything. Yeah. Don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. Oh, okay. Well, so next week we'll be moving on a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So next week, uh, we are moving on to fashion, film and fetish, crimes of passion and blue velvet. Um, and let us know how you're liking the series. Get in touch with us. Get in touch. On all of our social media, which we have so many. Yeah. There are so many ways for you to contact us. It's just silly that we're not in constant dialogue. Anyway. Okay. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.